0: I'm going to start with the story of uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. When um, Zedekiah was the last king of Israel, of Judah, you remember the split kingdoms, uh, Zedekiah was the last king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came down, conquered Judah, carried everybody away, and they had been living there in captivity for a number of years, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar died, the kingdom was eventually lost, the the Babylonian kingdom was eventually lost uh, by his grandson, and uh, the Persian empire took over. So now we're well into the Persian empire, and and there's going to be a lot of scripture, so you're going to have to turn fast, if you can't turn that fast, jot some scripture down, because... I want you to be able to go back and look at this again if you have the time. 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, last chapter, chapter 36. Starting with verse 22. 2 Chronicles 36, 22. In the first year of Cyrus, King of Persia, in, or, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah Now Jeremiah was the prophet at that time. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus, king of Persia, says: The Lord, the God of heaven. Has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Anyone of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So somehow God moved upon this pagan king, Cyrus, that he wanted his temple to be rebuilt. Remember, it had been destroyed when the Babylonians came. And Cyrus, this pagan king, just said, I think the Lord wants me to let some of you people to go back and rebuild the temple. So Zerubbabel, who was a grandson of Zedekiah, he said, I'll go. Zerubbabel took a group with him, went back down to Judah, and they began rebuilding the temple. They got the temple built up. They they finished everything. Ezra, he was living in, 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 in Persia as a captive. He came down when the temple was finished, and he said, I'm going to reinstate. Ezra was a scribe. Now, scribes were, they knew everything about the law of Moses. Because a scribe, remember, was, he was one of these people that every time a parchment of the scriptures was starting to wear out, they had to copy everything down on some new parchment. Or whatever they used. And so they had to do it word by word. And so they were very well versed in the law. Because they had to keep writing this stuff down. So Ezra came down and he said, Well I know all about what's supposed to go on in the temple. I know all about how the priests are supposed to serve. And I know every detail about what's going on. So let me go down and I'll reinstate uh, all of this stuff. about the, the, the And he brought some of the... Um, the, 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 the Levites with him. The Levites were supposed to serve in the temple and they got everything reinstituted. Services in the temple. They reinstituted the tithes. They reinstituted everything about how the temple was supposed to work and how the Levites were supposed to be supported. Remember the Levites, when they got their inheritance, when Joshua, when they got into the land, the Levites didn't get land the Levites got cities and their job was to serve in the temple. They were to serve the Lord. And part of what their income was that when the people brought their sacrifices, part of it was supposed to go to that particular priest who was serving and his family. So when also when they... They, uh, they plowed their, when they took care of their land, when they, when the, the Jewish people, when they had land and everything, their tithe was that they weren't supposed, like here's a plot of land like this. When they harvested, they were supposed to go not to the edges of their land and harvest. They were supposed to leave the outside edges and the corners because the, The poorer people would come and they would glean from those corners and edges. And also, they weren't supposed to go over it twice. And whatever was left over, the people had to come in and they had to, they were able to make a living by getting these extras. Same thing with a a grove of fruit, of olives, or whatever it was, they were allowed to come in and pick because... They were the, per- the owner, only was supposed to go through and sort of just loosely gather. Now, Ezra knew all about that. So when he came back down, and he came back down with a group of people, and he came back down with the Levites, and they reinstituted the tithing, the, uh, the way they were supposed to work the land, the, the temple worship, and how everything was supposed to go. When all that was done, Neh- <coughs> excuse me. Nehemiah. Came along and he said, I'm going to go down and build the walls. And so Nehemiah comes down and he says, okay, I'm going to rebuild the walls. And he got a bunch of people with him. And um, this is where the story gets interesting. There were some enemies that were trying to keep Nehemiah from doing his work. And there's this one guy, his name was Tobiah. Now he was an Ammonite. He was an an enemy of Israel. But he was living in the land. Almost anybody could come and live in the land at that time because the, the, the Jewish people weren't in charge anymore. They didn't have a standing army down there. So their land was overrun with all kinds of people. So this Tobiah guy, he got in there as an enemy and he was trying to discourage Nehemiah from building the walls. Nehemiah eventually, you know, worked his way in there and just sort of told this guy, you know, you're not going to stop me. And in spite of all this, he rebuilt the walls. He went back to uh, Persia. Now, here's where we pick up the story. In the book of Nehemiah, if you turn with me to Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13. I have to give you all this background. Because it will help us understand later what's going on. Nehemiah 13. And I'm I'm going to be reading out of the, uh, the NIV. Verse 1. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. Nehemiah chapter 13. Did I say something different? Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, We started in verse 1. Okay. (laughs) Nehemiah had called a meeting. And he got the priests together and he got everybody together. And they, they wanted to worship about, they wanted to rejoice about what was going on. And now he's relating this story and in verse 4, he, he, he kind of is, is going back. He's, he's sort of recounting what had happened before this moment. In verse 4, he says, Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, that Ammonite enemy guy. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. See, after Nehemiah had finished the wall, he went back to uh, Persia. And all this was going on while he was up in Persia. He said, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, or Persia, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and through All Tobias household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their old fields, their own fields. So I rebuked the the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Peta, Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zachor, the son of Mataniah, their assistant because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible. For distributing the supplies to their brothers. How did Nehemiah know about this? Did he just get wind of it? Turn with me now to Malachi. Keep your finger there. Let's go to Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, starting with verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. I got to thinking about this. I got to thinking about how often we hear this verse used. And I got to thinking, okay, well, where is it used? How is it used? And I started looking at this guy, Malachi. Now, typically, a prophet did not just make a statement out of the blue. He just didn't say, I mean, you know, if you... You see in the movies, if you go downtown, you see a guy walking with a a sandwich placard, you know, rejoice, for the kingdom is at hand. You know, and and it's just like kind of an off-the-wall guy. There's no context with anything. It's just a general statement, and you go, what's that all about? Well, sometimes we hear, we, we read about statements that the prophets make, and we don't connect them to what's really going on. And for years, we've looked at this verse... These verses, and so many times it's been, these verses have been used just to say, hey, you got to pay tithe. But we don't connect what's really going on. See, Malachi was the prophet who lived during the time of Nehemiah. If we go, now we go back to the book of Nehemiah. Malachi saw what was going on. Malachi looked at the sin that was being committed because this prophet. This, this priest, this Jewish priest, Eliashib, had made an alliance with this wicked Ammonite named Tobiah. They had the temple of the Lord, which was supposed to be used for, for God. But he moved a pagan guy in there. Only priests were ever allowed to go into the temple. Now there is a pagan guy living in the temple. Not even a Jew. An Ammonite. And so, the temple worship wasn't going on anymore. Everything was going wrong. Tithes weren't being stored anymore because this guy was living there. The Levites who were supposed to be doing the operation of their office and supposed to be, you know, running the temple. There was nothing for them to do anything anymore. So they went back to their ancestral homelands. Nothing was going on anymore. Malachi looked at that and went, Whoa, you guys are robbing God you guys aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. Now, when it came to the tithe of, the, of the, the Jewish people, their tithe went to the welfare of the nation. They had a tithe that they were commanded to do. You know, like not... Getting every last piece out of their field during harvest, but leaving some of it. When they took their offerings to the temple, the priests kept some of it. Some of the, the the cuts of meat, they kept it and took it back to their families. This is how they this is how they lived because they didn't have the inheritance of land. They didn't work regular jobs, but now because. The temple wasn't being used properly. They had nothing else to do. They went back to their homelands and started farming. So now, let's go back to verse 8 in Malachi 3. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Now see, this is Malachi stepping up and calling the Israelites back to what they're supposed to do. And this is when Nehemiah comes back into the picture. What? What? He says, the house of God is being used for this. So Nehemiah goes down, kicks out Tobiah, gets rid of all of the the junk that's in there, sends him packing, and then tells the people, all right, let's get back to what we're supposed to be doing. Now, when you look at this, This was directed, this prophecy was directed directly at the nation of Israel for their sin. Taken in context, this is not to be directed at you. Don't let someone come in and tell you that you are robbing God because you aren't tithing. I'm going to get to that. We're supposed to be giving. We have to do that. But don't let someone put you into bondage by using this portion of Scripture because it's not directed at you. It's directed directly for what it was spoken for. Malachi said, what's going on here? It's not right. And Nehemiah came down and he fixed it. Now... We go to, well, well, let's do one other thing. Let's go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, I I hope I'm not losing you. I'm kind of taking the the backdoor approach because I want to kind of set the stage. Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is is more scripture that's used to make you feel bad if you're not giving. 28, starting with verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And there's a whole list of really cool blessings. Just blessing for that and this and the other and your, your children and your household and your finances and all of that. Then, in verse 15, it says, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees, I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then there's a whole list of all kinds of things and curses and bad stuff that'll happen to your family, to your children, to your finances, to your home. If you don't obey all your, these commandments. Now, guess what? We can't obey the commandments. The commandments, remember, were not set there to say live by these commandments. The commandments were set up... To show us that we can't live by these commandments. But yet we throw tithing in there. We say, if you give and if you tithe, all these blessings will come on you. Remember what James said in the New Testament, in the epistle in the, um, the book of James, it says, if you've broken the least of these commandments, you've broken all of them. So it doesn't matter if we're faithfully paying our, paying our tithe according to these verses. Because if we've broken one commandment, we've broken all of them. So everything is nullified. You know, we're not going to get any blessings if we pay our tithe because we've broken the law somewhere else. So that puts us automatically under the curse. But remember, Jesus Christ died, was buried, resurrected to lift the curse from us. So why do we give? It's not because we're commanded to give because we can't obey the commandments. It's not to re to to lift a curse because the curse has been lifted from us. It's not so we get something because we've already got everything. Things are probably coming into your mind because as I've studied this, my mind began to fill with all the things that I hear on radio and TV and other pulpits. That if you give, God's going to give to you. And they usually make it synonymous with stuff, earthly stuff. And they like to link it up with... with, um, Cool things to say, like Deuteronomy 1, 11. God will, if you give, God will multiply you a 1,000 times. So that's the principle of 111. That means if you give $111, God will send back to you a $1,000. Oh, okay, this is what we get fed. Now, we may not believe this, but maybe because of our past, Maybe because of what someone in authority has told us. A lot of these things stick. So that when it comes time for us on a particular day, on a particular Sunday, to give, then we're thinking, gee, if I don't, something awful is going to happen to me. We have, we have some friends that, that lost their home. And they, things were so bad for them up until the end that they, they, couldn't, they couldn't tithe. So now they're living under the condemnation that because they didn't tithe, God punished them and took their home. Oh, yeah. what a weight to live under. But see, God didn't put us under that kind of curse. He didn't put us under that kind of mindset. You see, the tithe in the Old Testament, when God set all that up, the tithe was the same as us paying taxes. That was what kept the nation of Israel running on a daily basis. That's what kept the poor fed. That's what kept the Levites going. That's what kept the widows going. That was their social how they kept the government running we already do that we get a, we get a paycheck from work there's money out of there that went to the nation of you know it went to the federal government that's how our government works the israelites also had free will offerings like the peace offering that they could give any time they wanted They could do that whenever they felt blessed of God. Remember, when God set up the Ten Commandments, that was prefaced with love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. See, the Ten Commandments and all of the law, they were set up, why? As a precursor, as as something that we look forward to in Jesus Christ. All of the the sacrifices, all of the killing of animals, all the shedding of blood, the blood didn't take away the sin. The shedding of the blood of the animal didn't take away the sin. It was a precursor, it, it was a shadow, it was pointing to what God wanted to do when people realized their sin. Um, David, he, you know, in the middle of that horrible sin with Bathsheba and, and killing her husband Uriah, when, 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 when Nathan confronted him, He went to God and in Psalm 51 he said, God, it's not the blood of bulls and bullocks that that appeases you. It's a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's what the law is supposed to do, because you could obey the law with without any any heart attitude. If you sinned, you could go out and you could get your animal and, and, and take it to the priest and have him sacrifice it. But if there was no repentance in your heart, it meant nothing. If there was no love for God in your heart, it meant nothing. That shed The shedding of that animal, the, the blood of that animal, meant nothing. And David got it. And that's what it was supposed to do. So now... That's where we live. Christ came, shed his own blood as a covering for us. We live in him. That blood has been shed. So now we live according to him. When Pentecost came and filled us with the Spirit, that put us in direct contact with the Father. So now, all that's required of us, because the blood has been shed by Christ, all that's required of us is repentance. So now, why do we give? Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, we gave because we wanted to be accepted by God. Why do we give? It's because we have been accepted by God. Why do we give? In the Old Testament, it was, I want to give because I want to be blessed by God. We give now because we are blessed by God. In the Old Testament... I give because I don't want to live under a curse because I don't give. Now we give because the curse has been lifted Amen. from us. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians. Now, there's, there's a ton of scripture I'm not using, and, in, and for some of you, it's probably coming to mind, but I didn't have my notes, and I can't remember all of it, so <laughs> um, but anyway, there's more scripture than I could possibly use in a given message, but we're going to start with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, As an aside, uh, the disciples came to Christ, and they said, uh, hey, you know, people are asking, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? Caesar?" And Christ said, give me a coin. So someone gave him a coin, and he looked at it, and he said, okay, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, okay, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God." And two things were happening there. They were living under Roman rule, and Roman rule demanded that they pay taxes to Caesar. So they had to do that. They were still living, even at the time of Christ, they were still living in the Old Testament covenant. And so Christ said, Okay, give God what's God's, because. He hadn't died yet. He hadn't gone to heaven yet. He hadn't shed his blood yet. So the new covenant hadn't taken effect yet. It was still old covenant. So the Jewish people were still responsible for maintaining Jewish civil law. And that was part of it. So he said, okay, you've got to pay your your taxes to uh, Caesar. And you've got to do your... Tithe to the the nation of Israel because we're still here. We still live under that. That was just, had nothing to do with New Testament giving. But again, you'll hear certain people trying to bang that on you to pay tithes every week. Give to God. Everything's God's anyway. But we're going to get a little closer into that as we go. Uh, Chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. Now, about, about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, so that when I come no collections will have to be made. Now, the Apostle Paul had already gone to Macedonia, Europe, and then he talked to the people there. And he told the people that down in Jerusalem the believers who were being really badly persecuted, they were having a tough time. And he, so he told the, 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 the people in Europe and Macedonia he said, these people are having a really bad time. Maybe we can help them out. So they said, okay. So now he's He's writing to the Galatians and he said, this is what I told the, 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 the churches in Galatia. On the first day of the week, uh, gather some money because pretty soon I'm going to go back to Jerusalem and I can take this money and, and we can help them out. They were meeting on the first day of the week. They were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish. They didn't know about the Sabbath. They didn't meet on the Sabbath. They knew that Christ resurrected the first day of the week. They said, hey, let's celebrate the resurrection of Christ and meet. So they met on the first day of the week. And Paul said, okay, I'm going to go going back down to Jerusalem they're in tight they're in a tight spot down there maybe we can help them out so every week the first day of the week they were getting this little money together so now he's writing the Corinthians and he's telling them hey uh, those guys in in Macedonia in Galatia they're going to help the people out down in Jerusalem how about it guys Now let's go to Second Corinthians, Chapter eight. This is about a year later, and Paul has, um, He's writing to the Galatians, to the the Corinthians a second time. He says, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. See, nobody came and coerced them. No one came in and beat it over their heads about tithing. See, they had entered in their relationship with Christ, in their walk with Christ. They they came into that realization that, wow, look what Jesus has done for me. Look what I have in Christ. I'm able to do something, and you know, and and Paul said entirely on their own. We're able to do something to help somebody. Verse 5, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. So now he's encouraging him. Okay, yeah, we talked about this a year ago, remember? He says, are you still collecting? I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to keep going. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now see, this excellence came with time. It came as they grew. It came with, as their walk with the Lord matured. It wasn't, okay, I've accepted Christ, and one of the things I have to do is tithe. Oh, Okay, I'll be obedient and I'll tithe. Um, It wasn't that. And somehow I feel that sometimes that's the bondage we put ourselves under. Because there, actually, there is no requirement for us to tithe. This was something that You notice know, flashing down there. This was something that, that God put in the hearts of his people. See, when Christ came, he gave all of himself for us. He made himself poor so we could become rich. And it's not talking about dollar bills. There, there was... I, I don't think of Christ as rich or I don't think of him as poor. He made himself poor by giving up his life. He left heaven, came here, took on the body of a man, walked around, went to the cross for us. Hallelujah. Thank God. And that's what our life is based in now. Let's go on. Verse 8, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to give so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. So when we take ourselves out of Old Testament theology, because we're not living in Old Testament Israel, And we don't tithe to the government of God. We we actually tithe to our nation, our federal government. Just like the Israelis did. All the money that their tithe went to, went to running the government. And then it was beyond that. It was their free will offering. It was their peace offerings that they gave to the Lord. So... We're already paying our, our tithe to the government. Now, where's this peace offering with the Lord? Where's this willingness to give beyond our means? To, uh, to give beyond our government? You know, it, it, it's, you know, who are we giving to? We're giving to you. We, we have people in need in our churches. We, we, we sort of look at our church as a Levitical system where here's the temple, Pastor Louis is our, our, our priest in charge, and so our 10% goes to that. Now, we've thought about it that way, but that's not really how it operates. How it really operates is This is not a temple, even though this place has bills, this place has to run, we meet here. But we could very well meet somewhere else and not have a building, but we would still want to give because we have people in need. Whatever the need is, whether it's paying the light and gas here, whether or not it's paying Pastor Louis' salary, whether or not there's someone in our church that lost everything and needs help. At some point, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that I give because God has given everything to me. Amen. And how much? Well, that's up to me too. Um, some people have always used uh, the ten percent, the whole tithe thing. You know, nothing wrong with that. But what if sometime the Lord taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, can you do a little bit more? But then what about the time when you think, oh, I can't do 10%. I won't be able to pay my bills. And you write a check for 5%. Are you going to feel guilty? Well, you shouldn't. Because it's according to what you have and what you don't have. There are a bunch of Prophets out there now telling us, if you don't have it, put it on your credit card and God will bless you. Oh man, come on. I hope nobody's going to fall for that. If you know anybody that's thinking about doing that, talk them out of it real quick because that's not God. Verse 13 Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathers much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. That's a direct quote from back in Exodus. Remember when God sent the peop- when the people were out wandering around and God sent manna because they didn't have food? He told them. He said, if you have five people in your family, go out and gather five pounds, and it'll be just enough. Some people went and gathered six when they had five in their family, and the sixth pound turned out to be all maggoty. See, that should tell us that if we're going to fight and work for more than God intended us to have, it's not going to do us any good. God has determined in each one of our lives... And I can't make that decision. He's determining each one of your lives what he wants you to have. What he wants you to be satisfied with. You know, on, on the, when the Israelites, on God told them, on the sixth day, get twice as much. Because the next day is the Sabbath and I don't want you to go out on the Sabbath. Just, take, just get twice as much so you'll have something. So some people they decided to sit around and not do anything. They only got enough for Saturday or enough for the day before the Sabbath. Then when the Sabbath came, they didn't have food and they got out and they went out to look for some and there wasn't any. So God is working in each one of your lives. And this is what's neat about not being in bondage to anything because you are going to live according to your knowledge and what you learn about Jesus Christ. When it comes to giving and how much, you have to have the freedom without the guilt to decide how much is right for you. And God will speak to you. And he'll say, I want you to give more. And you'll say, but I can't give more because then I won't have enough. And he might say, well, check out what you spend during the week. And maybe you'll have more then when I ask you. Or he might say, hey, um, I want you to take that money and go help that person over there. Well, then I won't have enough for Sunday. Uh, I I want you to help that person. That's still my heart. We're running out of time, and I don't have my notes. Um, But I'm hoping that This will will help you in your processing why we give, how much we give, and what our hearts should be. Remember, God says, the earth is mine and all of its fullness. So there's nothing I have that God didn't give me. And I can either use it for corruption, I can use it for good, but God has given it to me, and as I walk with him and as I mature in him, then he will share with me how I'm to use what he's given me. So, God bless you.